you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the California Underground. My name is Phil. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is a brand new podcast, and uh, we're going to be talking about things California politics-wise, national politics-wise. We're going to mix them together. We're going to talk about how California affects the national level and how national politics affects California level. So with that, let's jump right into today's out-of-the-gate topic. It's called Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. So in Governor Newsom's inauguration speech, he stated that he would be aggressive with his budget while at the same time practicing fiscal conservatism to ensure that the budget surplus is not drained. He talked about bold plans to invest in affordable housing as well as health care, but still preached fiscal conservatism. In the past week, it appears as if Governor Newsom has kept to that pledge with two executive moves that appear to be fiscally conservative and or responsible. Now, first, Newsom stated that he would be pulling out, pulling the California National Guard troops from the border to better allocate resources to more pressing issues in California, like wildfires. Even though California right now has experienced historic rainfall and there's absolutely no imminent threat of wildfires anywhere in the state. Second, Newsom stated in his state of the speech, state of the state speech, that he would be putting Governor Moonbeam's high-speed rail far on the back burner. His reasoning is that there is no logical way to build a high-speed rail from San Diego to Sacramento, let alone from LA to San Francisco, and that the cost is too prohibitive to keep going. However, and here's the rub, since they would look into plans to build a high-speed rail through the Central Valley from Bakersfield to Merced, it wouldn't be a total loss. Now, at first blush, many conservatives or moderates in California may look at this past week and say, wow, I can't believe Governor Newsom is actually exercising restraint when it comes to our budget. But don't be so quick to let praise on our new governor. While they may appear as responsible moves on his part as governor, it is easy to see through his motives. Now, it's no secret that Newsom is no fan of President Trump and his crusade to bring border security to America. His move to remove California National Guard troops is nothing more than a thinly veiled power play with President Trump. While Governor Moonbeam may have acquiesced and sent troops to the border, Newsom was not going to have any of that. To further try and argue that it was to, quote, fight wildfires is so blatantly false that it is insulting to Californians. It was not to conserve resources, but to poke President Trump in the eye. It's not like President Trump just can't assert his authority to nationalize and send them back, but the message is loud and clear. Don't interfere in my state. Further, Newsom's decision to crap the, scrap the high-speed rail from L.A. to San Francisco seems commendable, but his alternative again gives away his intention. If Newsom were to simply give up the project, he would have to return a $3.5 billion that was granted the state back to the federal government. This isn't nefarious, he came out and said it. By continuing with another high-speed rail project, California can keep the money and not send it back to President Trump to be spent on other projects, like a wall, perhaps. 
While it is true that Newsom has shown some fiscal restraint, it doesn't take much to see right through it as more of political calculus. But regardless of his moves to try and play big on a national stage against President Trump, Newsom will have to be a careful steward of the state's finances going forward. Now, it's been reported by a piece in the American Thinker that California missed the budget in January by $1.8 billion due to a $2.5 billion crash in personal income tax collections. Even though the state has missed its budget in December and January, Governor Newsom is still plowing ahead with his ambitious budget that includes $5.2 billion for his cradle-to-career program and $100 million for refugees fleeing Central American violence. To put it bluntly, California has a spending problem right now. And Newsom plowing ahead with deficit spending is not going to help ensure that $20 billion surplus is around for too long. One thing is for certain. Newsom does not make any move without any sort of political benefit. Sometimes it's overtly obvious as to what he is up to, and sometimes it will be more nefarious. Therefore, it's even more important than ever to keep a watchful eye on Governor Newsom to see whether he is making moves to help Californians or to simply help himself. And that's today's Out of the Gates Thoughts. So yeah, the big news was Governor Newsom came out and said, well, I'm going to scrap this high-speed rail because it's too cost-prohibitive. And everybody tried to run around and say, oh, what are, you know, this is a win for conservatives. This is a great thing for moderates and Californians because Governor Newsom has come in and he's recognized that this is a stupid idea to have this high-speed rail. But as I've just pointed out, Gavin Newsom does not do anything without any sort of political calculus behind it. He did these two moves specifically because he could poke an eye at President Trump. And he vowed that during the election. He came out and said, we're going to be the resistance state. We're going to be the anti-Trump state. We're not going to stand for his policies. We're going to stand up on our own as a California republic. It's becoming more and more evident that that's what he wants to do, is to continually poke his finger in Trump's eye. He wants to keep asserting himself on a national stage as if he's trying to run for president. Now, I've said that I hope he runs for president. I pray that he runs for president because the more he's out of this state is the better for Californians. It's much better for us if he's far, far away from the governor's mansion. Now, I don't know if it's good that the lieutenant governor's in charge or he's making half-assed decisions from the campaign trail. But regardless, I think it's better if he's way off and already thinking about the presidency, which I would not put past him because Governor Newsom is one of those political figures who always has his eye on the ball of what his next move is going to be. When he was the mayor of San Francisco, it was obvious that he was going to think about, well, how is he going to get to be governor? Now, he didn't run to be governor when uh, Governor Moonbeam was running because he was so popular, so he figured, I'll just run as lieutenant governor. And then lieutenant governor led into him barely showing up to work, barely actually doing any of his duties. And then it turned into uh, just him eyeing the governorship. And now everyone says it came close because John Cox was in the race. And I'm going to tell you right now, it was not close because John Cox was in the race. Maybe John Cox was just there because people were fed up with what's going on with leftist policies here in California. But that doesn't mean that it was going to be a close race. It was going to be Gavin Newsom all the way. It was going to be, and as you could see, he slaughtered John Cox because John Cox was nothing more than just the loser out of Chicago who has no 
ability to win an election. I don't think he's ever won an election. And we decided we're going to put all our hopes and dreams on saving our state with John Cox. So that's Governor uh, Gavin, uh, Gavin, Gavin, Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. Sometimes you trip over his words. And I try to keep this podcast as raw as possible and not edit it because why? I don't want it to be squeaky clean. This is real stuff. This is real politics. Um, so that's what's been going on in the state. I want to touch on that, and we'll come back around to it and why uh, Gavin Newsom, why, why these decisions are important, why we have to start looking at them. But before that, I like to always touch on national news, have a little commentary, and then we come back to the California news, and then we kind of finish out the show um, with some closing thoughts. So on national news this week, President Trump went down to El Paso. Uh, he had his big border rally. And then he declares the national emergency, which he's been hinting at for about a month now. Probably longer than that, he's actually been hinting at it. Mark Levin, who is a great constitutional lawyer, if you are a conservative and you like to listen to Mark Levin, uh, he always makes a great case. Um, As an attorney, I like to listen to him talk about this stuff because I get to sit here and say, oh, you know, that's a really good legal argument. And I like to know the law behind it. I don't like to just hear political pundits who are sitting there screaming, oh my God, it's, he's a dictator, it's Hitler, oh my God. I like to actually hear someone sit down and say, well, can he constitutionally do this? Yeah, he can constitutionally do this. And it's been shown that, uh, I think it was Clinton had 17, Barack Obama had 13, 10 of which are actually still going on. Trump has three so far. But because it's a national emergency on the border wall, uh, now, all of a sudden, it's a big issue. And let me tell you this about the border wall. And everyone says, well, why are they fighting Trump so much on the border wall? I'll say it's more than what people think it is. This is my theory. It, does, it has a little bit to do with the open borders idea. Uh, they're playing that sort of angle because it plays out well in the media and the, the left, I mean, the mainstream media laps it up and they run with it, this idea that, oh, if we open our borders and we let all these people, in, how are, you're a racist if you want these people to come in legally. What, do you hate people from South America and Central America, you bigot? That's, that's just to misdirect you. My theory on why they do not want the Trump wall is very simply, the Trump wall would be a monument to the idea that a man from the outside with enough gumption, with the right charisma, with his own uh, fundraising and backing, could go into Washington and absolutely destroy the establishment. The establishment in Washington does not want people to see a Trump wall because it would personify or it would embody his promise to go in and shake things up. That's why they don't want it. Because if they get a Trump wall, everyone has to look at that for decades and decades to come and say, tell the story of a man came along, a billionaire, an eccentric billionaire who talked funny, came along and said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go run for president of the United States and I'm going to beat the most well-funded candidate and supposedly the most quote-unquote well-qualified candidate in political history. And he did it. 
and he came in and he changed things and they don't want that. That's that ties into why they go after Trump so hard. They want to scare potentially anybody else who has this idea that they can come into Washington and play their game better than they can. They want to scare them away. That's the idea. This has nothing to do with open borders. I mean, they all say the same thing. Oh, we want open borders and we want, uh, you know, these people to come over and this, that and the other thing. But then you can find recordings of them saying that they want border security. It doesn't matter what they say. The reason they fight so hard on a Trump wall, even though it's his number one campaign promise, is because they don't want a permanent monument to the achievements of an outsider in Washington. That's it. Look at it that way, that they want, if they can make Trump fail on the wall, then what else can they make him fail on? You can demoralize his base and say, look, he didn't build the wall. He promised he was going to build the wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. This is not about border security or whether we should let people in in droves or whatever. This is about don't act up. Stay in your lane. This is sit down and shut up and let the people in charge, like the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's, and even the rhinos like Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, establishment Republicans, all part of the same uniparty. It's all a message to anybody in America to sit down and shut up and don't you ever think about coming in and playing our game. That's why they don't want a Trump wall. That's why they're coming at Trump with everything they have. But he's declaring a national emergency. He supposedly got $8 billion on the way, which is more than he was going to get get with the deal. He got, you know, 1.7 or something from this spending bill. And, and people are killing him because the thought that he caved and he only got $1.7 billion and he had to go to a national emergency. The man's dealing with a corrupt government. Republicans in his party wrote this crappy bill and gave it to him. And you're going to sit there and say, oh, it's President Trump's fault. He, he doesn't write the bill. And it was a veto-proof bill anyway. What do you want him to do? Shut down the government again and then they will really be on him again? He got both. He got money from Congress, even though they weren't going to give him anything. Think about the first time the government shutdown happened. They weren't going to give him anything. They said, pound sand, President Trump. We're not giving you a dime in border security or at least for a permanent structure. Now they came back, ah, they almost got $2 billion out of it. That's a big difference between zero and $2 billion. And now he's able to scrounge up $8 billion on top of that. And it's not all from the national emergency. They've been able to find funds in different places. Mike Mulvaney supposedly did an incredible job going out there and finding there was money in the Department of Defense and the Pentagon and all these different programs. I was just sitting there. So he said, okay, well, we need this and we need this. We're going to use this for military construction. But that's what he's dealing with. And everyone's killing him. People like Ann Coulter. It drives me freaking nuts when you have people like Ann Coulter who are not helping the cause at all because all, all they do is they run around screaming, well, President Trump, he didn't listen to my exact specifications of what it means to be a conservative, so therefore he's not a conservative. And therefore he's a traitor to our cause. 
you know, Aunt Coulter, just go sit down and shut up. Your books are not helping anybody at this point. You People like Ann Coulter don't help the cause at all. They hurt the cause. She's polarizing. She's inflammatory. She turns people off. She should go sit down and shut up, enjoy her millions of dollars from her best-selling books because she's not helping the cause. And I, I, who am I? Some guy with a little podcast telling her to sit down and shut up. But people like that drive me nuts. That this idea that you have to be this perfect conservative. You have to do everything perfectly the way we want it. Otherwise, you're not going to be a good president or you're going to be a traitor. Democratic presidents get away with it all the time. Obama got away with so much stuff and the left didn't care. They just let it go. They just looked past it. They didn't care. The whole, oh, yeah. imagine if, if Barack Obama was a Republican and he came out and said, oh, if you like a doctor, you can keep your doctor. That sounds more like Bill Clinton, but you get the idea. If he said that and then months later found out you couldn't keep your doctor if you liked your doctor, the right would be going mental and killing him over it. They let it pass. It, it goes down the memory hole. No one cares. The left goes, oh, no, it's, it's fine. Obamacare is fantastic. I don't, rem- I don't ever remember him saying that. I don't ever remember him saying that if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Maybe it's time for you to change your doctor. Maybe you don't like your doctor. But that's one of the problems we have. If you're on the right and you're a conservative, it gets frustrating how many of these puritanical conservatives you have running around like Ann Coulter, who screw the party left and right because all they do is they're horrible mouthpieces. Oh, then they go on Bill Maher. Fantastic. They go on Bill Maher. A show that actually has someone who's a semi-libertarian, you don't have a rational Republican who goes on there, a charismatic Republican who's appealing, who can go on to Bill Maher and actually make this work. No, he, he, he has Ann Coulter come on. Ann Coulter's fantastic. They, he likes Ann Coulter on his show because it, it, it makes Republicans and conservatives look like absolute nut jobs. He doesn't have Ann Coulter on because he wants to hear two sides. He likes Ann Coulter because she's a polarizing figure. I'm sorry, I got a little passionate about this because you know sometimes it's just when people, they just don't work together, they don't see the common goal. And here we're trying to look past that and say, we have a common goal, we got to push back on the far left. They're getting out of control. And I don't care if you're a puritanical conservative or a libertarian, as I've said, or a moderate democrat or an independent who just wants to make sure their, their kids are taken care of and you can own your home. This is the time we have to make sure that we can band together, lay down our arms, and fight back against the far left. We can sort all this stuff out later, but right now, this is war. This is, this is war. They want to dis- divide and conquer. They want to destroy. All right, that's enough on that topic. Moving on, uh, the green new pipe dream, as I like to call it, because that's uh, it's about as much as you're going to get out of it. I don't really like to talk about her. I don't even like to mention her. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Aok, Aok, the dinosaur hunter. I don't even really like to give her more airtime. Because that's all the networks do. I mean, Fox gives her airtime. Everybody gives her airtime. I more want to talk about this green pipe dream. Because I think it's just absolutely crazy that this somehow made it out in the party. Now, they backpedaled. And after people got a look at the first draft and said, 
Are you kidding me? Let's see. Uh, what's the, they want to get rid of farting cows. That's a big thing uh, because, you know, farting cows are, are extremely dangerous. So everyone's, we're all going to go vegan. No more, no more farting cows or farting livestock. Got to get rid of them. Planes. Planes are awful. We got to get rid of planes. Uh, and how, what are we going to do? We're going to ride choo-choo trains everywhere. You want to go to Hawaii? Great. We're going to ride a choo-choo train all the way to Hawaii. Now, I'm being facetious. You're probably going to have to ride along a, a big boat that'll probably take, I don't know how many days it's going to take for you to sail out to Hawaii, but whatever. You make a two-week vacation out of it. Who cares? It's the green pipe dream. You don't have to work. That's the other thing. This green pipe dream, you don't have to work. What are you worried about taking a vacation? If you, if you don't want to work, you can go take a vacation to Hawaii. Don't worry. If you're unwilling to work, they will pay you. That's what they said in the, in the, in the deal. So don't worry about it. Everyone will be taking trips to Hawaii because no one has to work. Now, of course, they, they backed off of this a little bit. They took it down. People were pushed on it a little bit more. But the fact that this actually made it onto a congressman's page and it got so much press just goes to show you that, that I keep getting more and more surprised by how far the loony left is going to go. They keep going farther and farther left. At this point, if I was any conservative or moderate at this point, I would just sit back and say, eh, I'm just going to let them go. I'm just going to let them go far off the deep end, because right now they are the best political advertising you can have. Just let them keep going down that road. The more people hear this stuff, they're going to turn their eyes and go, ooh, do you think the Heartland's going to vote for getting rid of all this stuff? No. Do you think the Rust Belt's going to vote for getting rid of their factories that that produce carbon emissions? No. Now, of course, uh, you know, the hipsters in Brooklyn and in and, and Berkeley and San Francisco, of course, they're going to sit there in their coffee shops and they love this stuff. And they say, oh, this is fantastic. This is what we've been looking for, a socialist utopia. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is our, our new Che Guerrero. Fantastic. We should put her on shirts. She's a hero. But just let them keep, keep going down that road. That's what I say. Just let them keep going down the road. Let them split up even more because then you get guys like, and I've talked about this in the last podcast, poor guys like Howard Schultz who's actually, I would say he's a left-leaning Democrat. He's a corporatist Democrat. I mean, he's a billionaire. He worked his way up. He, he did what he was supposed to do. Um, he lived the American dream. He doesn't believe in this whole, I'm going to tax everybody into prosperity, that you can't tax the wealthy 90%. It's just ridiculous. But they're going to eat themselves alive. They're, they're going to out-socialist each other. They're going to try and out-virtue signal each other. They're going to try and, uh, you know, you got Kamala Harris out there. She's trying to out, uh, what is it? I, I'm going to say out Michelle, everybody else, because Michelle Obama is not running. So she's going to try and step in the shoes to be that that sassy, cool, hip woman like Michelle Obama she was quoted on a, on a show, uh, I think it was, it, I forget it was called The Breakfast Club with uh, Charlemagne the God, and she said, they asked her, oh, you know, do you, do you support legalizing marijuana? That's something that I actually can get behind. I, I don't care. Marijuana, 
It's the least one of the least harmful things you can put in your body compared to alcohol. Alcohol gives you liver damage and cirrhosis, and it leads to violence, and it, it's horrible. It's depressing. You know, at least marijuana chills you out. It gives. It has medicinal purposes. It helps a lot of people. You can't say that alcohol helps people with uh, you know PTSD or anything like that nature. So I actually support it. So of course she jumps on the bandwagon and says, oh, "Of course I support it. I'm Jamaican. I'm half Jamaican." Well, I actually I thought you were I thought you were 100% African American. Now you're half Jamaican. It's kind of interesting. Kind of a little context, but besides that, there so well, you know, I I actually I toked up in uh, in college. I I toked up to take a little jab at Clinton and she goes, "And I inhaled." And of course, I was like, oh, I we could have a president who actually admitted to smoking marijuana. Yeah, that's old. That's passe news. Obama already, he, Obama already admitted to smoking marijuana. Big whoop. I, as if it's like a big deal now. Oh my God, someone smoked marijuana. It's becoming legal in more states anyway. So who cares that it's, somebody said, I, I smoked marijuana in college. Hmm, okay. Forget the fact that Kamala Harris was actually one of the strongest prosecutors on drug offenders in California, which is hypocritical of her to say, oh, now, yo, man, I'm totally behind this all now. But forget that. Forget that. The most terrifying thing I thought that she said on this uh, interview, I, I forget which host asked it, said, do you believe in the idea of reparations? I believe her quote was something like, it's, it's something I, I think I could get behind. Now, reparations, explain to me. And this is, I'm going to tell you a story about uh, a debate I had back in high school. It was a debate about, I think it was about Civil War and the end of Civil War. And we were supposed to figure out what was the best way to uh, fix the South and stuff like that. And so we had different sides of like, everybody had their different ideas of what they were going to do. At the end of the debate, uh, a fellow student of mine who, who was black, it got pretty heated, and he looks at me, and he goes, he says to me, well, you know, when your, parent, your ancestors were chaining up and making my ancestors slaves, blah, 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 and he was throwing that around, I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, look, buddy. I'm sorry, but if you're, when your ancestors were if slaves... I can guarantee you my ancestors were pushing a donkey cart around the hills of Italy or something. My roots all go back to Italy, so and they all came at the turn of the 20th century, so I, I had nothing to do with it. And on the issue of reparations, how do you tell? How do you look at everybody and say, oh, well, you're white, so therefore you're responsible for reparations? My family had nothing to do with it. My family didn't own slaves. I think it's something like less than, like, 3% of people in America now have ancestors who own slaves. And less than 20% or something actually descended from slaves. So it's just more, they just keep trying to go farther and farther and farther down the line. And I say, just let them. Just let them keep on trucking on down that line. And they just keep lining up one after another because they think each one of them is going to distinguish. And at this point, I don't know who's going to distinguish who. Kamala Harris is obviously the front runner. She's obviously going to set the tone. Everyone's going to follow her. 
you know, you got you, you got Spartacus out there. You, you got you got Pocahontas out there. Um, and you got Amy Klobuchar out there talking about global warming. Well, she's got a foot of snow on her head. Who else? Uh, did Bernie? Did, I, I, did Bernie actually announce? I thought I heard it somewhere that it was kind of like a, in passing. He said, "Oh, I, oh yeah." I, I, my, I'm sorry. My impressions are off today. I'm a much better. I usually have much better impressions than this. Everything's coming out like Bill Clinton today. But he he came out. I think he he's running. So I don't know. I, I can't keep track. They keep coming out more and more. Um, but they're all going to have to out-socialist each other. And by the time the general, or by the time the primary is done with the Democrats, they're going to have said so many kooky things that all President Trump has to do is sit back. I mean, there's going to be so much ammunition for someone like President Trump to go after. He's already going after them one by one. Bing, 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 bing. He just sees them. They line up. Amy Kobachar, up, bing. Makes fun of the fact that it's snowing afoot. You know, Cory Booker announces, bing, Spartacus. You know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, bing, Pocahontas. He's going to have way more material, I think, this time around than he than he did his first time. I mean, it was funny to listen to him talk about little Marco and Lion Ted and, and, and all that stuff, but I, I think he's going to have way more material. If you're a fan of when Trump goes out and trolls these people, get the popcorn ready because it's going to be fantastic. In his words, believe me. Okay, so moving on from national news, we're going to move into local news or statewide news. Uh, California GOP chairman race. Very exciting stuff. Hold on to your seats. I know you're sitting there going, oh, I can't wait to figure out who the GOP chairman is. As if you care, if you're a libertarian or a moderate Democrat, you probably don't even give a crap. You're like, whatever, this is really boring. Uh, But I want to say this for anybody who's a conservative or Republican who listens out there. Uh, spoke with someone, keep them on the anonymity, asked what's going on, got the inside scoop of what's going on. So you got a, a couple people. Travis Allen is obviously the most notable name. He's, he was the former candidate for governor. Uh, Jessica Patterson, who I'll get to in a minute, and Steve Frank. Those are sort of the three big names that are going for California chairman. Why is, why is this an important position? Well, because the California GOP has been a weak I've said this before, a weak and feckless organization. They just put loser after loser after loser out there. They don't think about reinvigorating their uh, image. They don't think about putting out good candidates who are actually going to help bring in those moderates, bring in those libertarians, bring in a coalition of people to say, you know what, I'm fed up with the far left. Maybe we can start coalescing some of these voters together and pull off a big win. Uh, Travis Allen, probably the most conservative out of all of them. But he does have probably the most grassroots support. Very popular. Very well liked. He's kind of like a rock star. Um, Steve Frank, supposedly, from what I've heard through sources, very smart guy, very intelligent. Uh, very, He knows the inner workings of state political parties. Uh, but Jessica Patterson is the one I kind of want to focus on. And in my opinion, from what I've seen, Jessica Patterson is going to be a disaster for the California GOP. Why? Because she's more of the same feckless losers. She's another one of those who's just happy to take a paycheck, happy to kind of sit there and smile and say, oh, we're going to fight back and we're going to win this and we're not going to give up the fight. 
But when it comes push to shove, she's shown time and time again that she's a loser. She's lost more than she's actually gained in her time. Um, she has the control. Uh, she's controlled by different lobbyists. Uh, one thing that I think is scary is she actually does not want to repeal Prop 14, which is the jungle primary system. Um, any Republican, any Republican should look at Prop 14 and say, absolutely, we want to repeal that because it gives us a better chance in a lot of races. It, it evens the playing field. You get so many races in California, just that alone, you get so many races in California that are Democrat and Democrat. So who do you pick? Well, I don't know. I guess I'll pick the uh, more moderate Democrat. Uh, eh, wrong. He's actually a far leftist. Or, oh, let me just pick the, the far leftist to, to make a point to Dianne Feinstein. Eh, wrong. If you don't like the far left, do you like the fact that uh, there's two far leftists on the top of every ballot that you ever go and vote for? I mean, talk about Banana Republic. It's a one-party state. This is basically Soviet Union now. You got to vote for Democrat or Democrat. Which Democrat do you like? Do you like this Democrat or do you like that Democrat? Well, this Democrat's from L.A. and this Democrat's from San Francisco. Oh, but this Democrat, he used to be a farmer and he used to be a farmer out in Central Valley. So he's a more moderate Democrat. He's only going to tax you at 5%. This Democrat over here from San Francisco, he's going to tax you at 8%. Oh, the one from L.A., he wants to tax you at 10% and use 5% of those taxes to build a high-speed rail. So any Republican who doesn't support the repeal of Prop 14 or the jungle primary system already out in my book. It means you don't even want to give your party a chance. You don't even want to give them any opportunity. And when it comes down to warfare like this in our state, you need every political advantage you can get. And if you're going to sit back and say, well, I'm fine with the jungle primary system. It's great. It's, it gets more people involved. It, who cares? It gets the only people who get involved are Democrats. We were lucky to get John Cox on the ballot. I doubt we're going to be that lucky next time unless we get a great candidate, unless Travis Allen runs again. Or unless you, you scrape up some other carpetbagger from Chicago to come in and lose. So Jessica Patterson would be an absolute disaster for the California GOP. And I know if anyone's listening and says, I'm not a Republican, I don't care. You have to care because as of right now, there's nothing else out there. I, I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but right now you only have one other party that has the infrastructure and maybe the funding to put up a fight against the far left in California. And that's the California GOP. It's not perfect. Again, like I've said, we'll put our differences aside after the fact. But we have to push back now. We have to coalesce somewhere. The divide and conquer is working on the other side. We, we got to coalesce and work together. Because there's, I tell you right now, if you add up Republicans, independents, probably libertarians... And anyone who identifies as a moderate Democrat, you coalesce those together, you dwarf the far leftists in this state. And you could win. You could win a lot more. But when you have someone like Jessica Patterson, who's another political puppet, she's going to do more of the same. She's going to sit there and smile and say, we're putting up our good fight. Keep giving us more money. When she doesn't want to really actually get out there and fight. 
I mean, she's seen the loss of 13 seats in California. How do you do that? You're supposed to be the ground level. You're supposed to be the ground level battleground for the, for the GOP. And you lost 13 states. You weren't paying attention. So now I know Travis Allen may not be perfect. There's something that I have some issues with Travis Allen. He may not be perfect, but at least he's excited. At least he's got charisma. Sometimes it takes someone like that to just be a leader in this sense. You need someone who's just going to energize the party, energize the base, get people excited about coming back into the fold. He can get the smart people to come in. He can get the right people to come in and help him run the actual party. You know, great leaders do that. Great leaders are the, 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 the lightning rod. They get the best people to come in. They coalesce the, the smartest people. They get them in a room and say, we got to figure this out. And I put you here because you're the best and the brightest and the sharpest. And you're the most talented. And we need each other to succeed. He may not be perfect, but he's got the grassroots. And that's what's important. People are yearning for someone to come out and be a fighter. And Travis Allen, he's a fighter. I make no qualms about it. He is very conservative. I will say that. He's very socially conservative. He is very uh, fiscally conservative. We could use the fiscal conservative. Maybe not so much the socially conservative. We don't really need that in California. But he's exciting. He's exciting. He's charismatic. He can bring a little bit of uh, oomph to the state party. So, now in other local, local news, homelessness in California is obviously on the rise, and it's a sad issue. Um, Anyone who lives in a city, uh, for example, if you live in San Diego or LA, uh, here San Francisco is also bad, um, but here in Southern California, it's it's pretty bad. San Diego, um, downtown is getting worse. It's having a big issue, um, and recently, the San Diego County Count, San Diego City Council has voted to repeal ordinance banning residents from sleeping in their vehicles. Uh, this is from KUSI. The San Diego City Council unanimously voted Tuesday to repeal a 1983 ordinance prohibiting residents from living in a vehicle on any street within city limits. Now, the repeal is, in essence, a response to a 2014 ruling by the U.S. Ninth Circus. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, did I say circus? I meant Circuit Court of Appeals, which struck down a similar ordinance in Los Angeles as unconstitutionally vague. Homeless advocates repeatedly reminded the council of the law's shaky constitutional foundation prior to the vote. City Councilman Chris Ward noted that the repeal isn't a solution to the city's homelessness issue, but it's still a step in the right direction. It should be supplemented by more actions to reduce the burden on transient residents. Quote, nobody wants to see people relegated to living in their cars in the streets away from services, unquote, Ward said. We have the capacity and the ability to do more for individuals experience homelessness. It's not real housing. Well, no crap. We need to bring this full circle and work on more housing opportunities, end quote. So obviously this is an issue. Uh, if you live in San Diego, this is even even more uh, disturbing or, or frightening because... You have no idea who's living in their cars. Now you, you've given people the the ability to possibly sleep out. Uh, you know, you're paying a million dollars for a home in California, but guess what? Someone 
can be sleeping in their car outside of your house right on the street. Now, I don't want to make a light of this situation. It's not easy. Uh, I can't even imagine what it's like to be homeless. I've never been in a, that situation in my life where I look at myself and I say, oh man, I'm, I'm going to be homeless. I got to figure this out. But I mean, this is a bigger issue. This is something that California has been struggling with. And this is, uh, they've talked about this in the LA Times. They've had a huge article about how even though California spends the most on social welfare, we still have the highest poverty in the country. So it's, it's definitely an issue. And it's definitely more of an issue of nimbyism when you have people who want to throw money at the issue and don't care about, oh, you just take my tax dollars and go figure it out, but get them the hell off my lawn or get them the hell off my street. I doubt people in La Jolla want to see homeless people pulling up in front of their you know million-dollar homes and sleeping there. Uh, so going off that homeless uh, issue, this is from the California Political Review. Uh, this was an issue. It was called Misguided Solutions to State Homeless Problem. Uh, homelessness in California is a grand example of how government largesse may be hurting and not helping. As Morlock's Democrat colleague Jim Beal said at last year's hearing on the Senate Committee on Transportation and Housing, quote, more than $10 billion has been spent on the homeless the last few years, yet the crisis is not over. Einstein defines insanity as doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. If true... The state's policy towards homeless, as articulated by a committeeman, uh, Chairman Beal, is insane. Now, California has indeed spent millions of dollars over the years building housing to deal with its chronic and episodic homeless problems, and they're still with us today. In fact, homelessness has gotten worse. The condition in the city of Los Angeles, according to the LA Times, has risen a breathtakingly 75% over the past six years. The city of San Francisco is not far behind as almost all urban areas in California have experienced profound increases. Some estimates have homelessness growing in the state by over 65% over the past few years. Past solutions clearly didn't work. Plus, building has its own set of complications. First, on average, a unit of affordable housing costs nearly $400,000 to build in California, even more in the state's high-cost areas. Given that situation, the historical level of funding in Proposition 1, more than $4 billion, will barely support 10,000 units. Proposition 2, spending half as much as its sister measure, may only build 5,000 units of housing for the homeless mentally ill. That's barely enough to match the population living on the street tonight in Sacramento. Secondly, getting past the allegiance of activist neighbors who frown upon new housing mankind will take some undoing, or some doing. A 150-unit project for seniors was just dismissed from a San Francisco neighborhood after opponents spoke up. NIMBYs have just commenced a lawsuit to stop a, quote, smart develop in San Diego. Los Angeles uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti has recently confronted by a room full of angry beach residents over the prospect of erecting a new homeless facility nearby. A bill in the state legislature to promote greater downtown living was defeated after several housing combatants stormed a hearing room to express their outrage. And lastly, forcing someone into a rental housing situation may not be a solution. When 63% of tent dwellers in Seattle recently refused to leave their current street abodes for the warmth and security of emergency shelter, something is wrong. So simply housing the homeless doesn't work. Moreover, despite some evidence to the contrary, there is a direct correlation between homelessness and the obvious lack of affordable housing. Competing data suggests that nexus only exists for a few. By contrast, according to a survey done in 2015 by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, Nearly half of the homeless population suffers from mental illness. 
In addition, the National Coalition for the Homeless tells us that drug addiction is clearly a factor in remaining homeless. Is it possible we've been flying blind all those years? In other words, have we been enacting billion-dollar policies while ignoring the facts? Even in California, had the fiscal and political wherewithal to build more permanent housing for the homeless, it won't solve the problem. Now, with the right policies coming from Sacramento, we can begin to arrest the social decline downward spiral so many fellow Californians starting with, immediately building or rehabilitating temporary emergency shelters, with teams of volunteers removing the homeless from street living, providing regular on-site addiction, mental health, and medical services, facilitating the provision of these services through qualified nonprofits, considering a state policy for institutionalizing the mentally ill, and yes, help clear a land use path for building more housing of all kinds. Now, this was originally published in the Fox and Hounds Daily, but it was also republished in California Political Review. Uh, Timothy L. Coyle, um, he specializes in housing issues. Uh, These are all great solutions for Timothy, but there's one thing I'm just going to say, and I think those are all great ideas, maybe immediately, to try and get at. But one thing I've always believed in is, one, you have to do, I think the last one is probably the most realistic in my mind of how to fix this problem. Yes, you have to create more affordable housing in California. It's just gotten out of control to the point where you can't build anything. It's too expensive to build anything. It's too prohibitive. It's too cost prohibitive. It's too regulatory prohibitive. It's just too hard to build anything. Any developer will tell you they don't want to build in San Francisco. It's way too hard to get past any sort of permitting board. It's just impossible. So that's why the present price of housing continues to skyrocket. You don't see the same problem in L.A. and San Diego. They're just building and building and building and building, which is good. However, a lot of those new buildings, uh, not very affordable. If you look at some of the apartments, not incredibly affordable for people who are down on their luck. Um, So I think, yes, obviously building more affordable housing is one way to do it. I think obviously helping the people who are in need right now, also very important. But obviously, even more kind of macro we have to kind of look at. We just got to stop making California a prohibitive economy. California, and I've said this before, and I believe this wholeheartedly, if it had a more favorable tax scheme, it was more favorable to businesses, then you'd have incredible growth. You would be the leader of all sorts of economic growth in this country. You would see companies popping up. Uh, There'd be enormous wealth created here in California, enormous opportunity. Because when you create the opportunity, then people are going to come here. And when people have the opportunity, they can work. And when they can work, they can provide. Now, of course, there's going to be the people, the greenies out there who have uh, actually uh, who gum up the works a little bit more because they're always worried about this thing or that thing. And, and California's fallen prey to that. Now, circling back to the top of this podcast when we were talking about Gavin Newsom and his, his cost, his high-speed rail, cost is too prohibitive. Everything is too prohibitive. This comes full circle. California right now, I think, is sort of at a breaking point. It's at a breaking point where we have to go one way or the other. And I'm afraid if we go the wrong way, the state's going to collapse. You can't continue to tax people into oblivion. You can't continue to cost people out of their homes. You can't continue to make it hard for the middle class to live here. 
You can't continue to take policy after policy that ends up hurting the poor. Now, I've written about this on the blog, californiaunderground.wordpress.com. It's one of the earlier posts you can search for. It, and I wrote about how California liberals, they don't care about the poor. Because they institute these policies, policy after policy, and they believe that they're helping. They get to clink their little champagne glasses. They get to do their little Instagram shot and say, oop, so blessed. I'm so glad I did what I did. I voted today. But they have no idea the ramifications. They don't see the long-term ramifications. And that's where the high-speed rail comes into. California right now is a train to nowhere. We've dumped billions of dollars into this idea of California as a leftist, socialist, nanny state. We've dumped billions into social programs to help welcome people who are not even citizens. We've provided millions of dollars in legal aid to those who are fighting for their immigration status, those who came here illegally who don't want to be deported. We've dumped billions into social welfare. We've dumped billions into homes for the homeless. We've dumped billions into our schools and in our infrastructure. And what do we show for it? Nothing. Our roads are dilapidated. Our schools are in the bottom of the the forty. What is it? Forty eighth or forty ninth of the of the country. We have record poverty, record homelessness. And, and keep this. This all comes back around to Gavin Newsom and his conservative fix or his fiscal conservatism. He can play the whole fiscal conservative to poke fun. At Trump. But it's time he's got to wake up and realize he has to really actually be fiscally conservative. That he actually has to make some tough choices about things. He has to look at what we've spent money on spent money on in the past. And seeing does it help? Does it not help? What are we spending money on that's not working? Is there anywhere we can cut back? I don't mind if a state says they want to do something that's progressive. I'm all for it. Let the states be the laboratories of America. Let them try the things that the federal government doesn't want to do. Let them try on a small scale stuff that they think would help the country at large. Not this green new pipe dream that says we have to get rid of planes and trains and farting cows. But let us try those things out. But at the same time, we have to be practical. And I worry that Gavin Newsom doesn't understand that being fiscally conservative with our budget and with our surplus is actually what he should really be worth. That should be his number one priority rather than throwing money at this, throwing money at that, or more importantly, doing it because he just wants to make a political move and show Trump up on the political stage. If he actually does look at the budget and say, well, we can't afford this and we can't afford that and we, we need to do this and we need to do, we cut back on that, then you know what? I actually applaud him. But I don't see it. In the, in the past week, all I've seen is him acting this way to be a resistance state. And I can tell you right now, it's a futile mission to try and go up against the federal government. Because in the end, the federal government has all the power. 
They have money. What are you going to do the next time you need FEMA and you keep poking Trump in the eye? Do you think he's going to give you money? Do you think he's going to rush to give you money? Maybe not. Man's got a heart. He may feel bad for Californians, but at the end of the day, meh. Maybe he doesn't want to work with Gavin Newsom. So when you play games like this, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. And Gavin Newsom, you may have made some moves that make you look like a a fiscal conservative, that you know what you're doing, that you're trying to be a steward of our our budget and our finances. But anybody who takes a, a, a quick glance and sees that you're doing this only because, only because you want to take a pot shot at President Trump, then it's all for nothing. And in the end, California and its socialist leftist program will end up like the high-speed rail. Everyone lauded it in the beginning. It's going to change the way transportation is done. It's going gonna, it's gonna to revolutionize America. That's what everyone said of the high-speed rail. It's going to revolutionize California. That's how all these leftist policies start. The promise of utopia and hopes and dreams. But in the end, what are you left with? You're left with some half-built train platforms and a train that never even left the station. But billions of dollars gone. To consultants, to researchers, to politicians, to contractors. And that's where we're heading in California. Right now, we're a train to nowhere. Until we start to take it back. Until we step back and say, we got, we, we got to do something. We got to tell them no more. Focus on the important things. Focus on the things that actual Californians really need. Not a high-speed rail. No one needs to worry about getting back and forth between L.A. and San Francisco in an hour on a train when you can do it on a plane just as easily. Focus on the real things that matter. Focus on the homeless who are on our streets who don't have a job or a place to go or an opportunity to reach out. Focus on those things. Focus on the things like helping kids get through school through a good school and into good colleges and that the parents are able to afford the homes that they live in that that are with the roofs over their heads while they sleep. Those are the things that Gavin Newsom should be focusing on, not political fights with President Trump. President Trump didn't do this. President Trump had nothing to do with why there's so many homeless on, on the streets of every city in California. He has nothing to do with why Stockton's gone bankrupt. He has nothing to do with why the high-speed rail has gone bust. He's nothing to do with that. So with that, that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked it, please remember to review and subscribe and uh, tell a friend. If you thought this was an informative podcast about California politics and you want someone else to know about us, let them know. CaliforniaUnderground.wordpress.com. You can go there. You can check out our podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify. We're on Anchor FM. Uh, Anchor FM, you can look us up. You can leave a voice message. Uh, like I always say, I love to hear from people. 
Email us at California Underground at, uh, at protonmail.com. So with that, thank you again. Remember to hit that subscribe button, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 